Good morning. All right, one thing that I have noticed that I think is interesting is um, that sometimes people tell stories and the number of words and the number of sentences that they use when they tell the story is often not proportionate to the amount of time it took for the story to happen. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but imagine if somebody said something, I'll just make up a story that's kind of like the kind of thing I've heard before. Imagine someone says to you, um, let's say it's a 20-year-old guy, and he says, I haven't talked to my dad in a long time. Um, I have no relationship with him. Uh, Last time I talked to him was shortly after my 18th birthday. He was so angry at me, and he kicked me out of the house. I can remember it like it was yesterday. We were both in the kitchen. He had the drink in his hand, um, and he was waving his arms around, and he spilled it all over this quilt that mom was working on, and he looked at me, and he said, get out and don't ever come back, and I looked at him like, are you sure? And he said it a second time, and I walked out the front door, and I walked about halfway down the um, driveway, and I looked back, and dad was on the front porch like shooing me away like this. And that's the last I saw. Like the last thing I saw my dad do was that. And then I've never talked to him since. And I moved to Florida and moved in with my Aunt Trudy. And, you know, ever, and I've been working at Publix these past two years. Okay, have you ever heard anybody tell a story like that? Yes, I'm not that specific story. I'm just saying like people talk like that and you go like, okay, and you're, you're tracking with it. But then what's weird is if you go back and think about it, in that story, 90% of the words are about a a one-minute event that happened in that person's life, which is them getting kicked out of the house. And then like 10% of that story was about a two-year period of his life. Isn't that weird how people do that? Have you noticed that people do that? They'll use a whole bunch of words to describe something that took place in like a minute, and then they'll take a sentence or two to summarize two years of their life. Isn't that weird that we do that? Okay, three people think it's weird. Good, You're, (laughs) you're my people. But what I've noticed is all of us do it. Like this is just a common way of telling stories. All of us do this. We zoom in and we zoom out. It's just the way that we tell stories. You can't give the same amount of attention to every single event in your life. So you zoom in and you talk a whole bunch of details about something that's significant. And then you zoom out and you describe sometimes days, weeks, months, years of your life in in just a summary sentence or two. And then you zoom back in and you talk about an important thing that happened. And then you zoom out and summarize a big section. That's just the way we tell stories. And I noticed as I've been studying through the book of Acts, The author of the book of Acts, Luke, um, he does that a lot. And especially in this passage that we're gonna do this morning. Today's passage is Acts chapter 19, verses one through 10. We're just picking up where we left off last week. We're going verse by verse through Acts, learning the life of Paul. And in today's passage, I just thought it was interesting. I looked it up in the Greek and this is is what I counted, okay? In this passage, Luke uses 111 words to describe something that took place probably over the course of an hour. And then... Right after that, he uses 64 words to describe a two-year and three-month period of Paul's life. And so as I read through this passage, um, I'm going to read the whole, I'm going to read the whole thing all at once, but I'm just going to let you know, there's, I'm going to break it into two chunks, and this is almost going to feel like two sermons, because you're just going to see the pace is just so different. Some of these verses are just really like a lot of words about a little bit of stuff that happened. And then some of these verses are very few words about a whole lot of things that happened. And so I'm gonna, I feel like because the pace is so different, the first part of the passage from the second part, I'm gonna have to, even though I'm gonna read it all at once, I'm gonna break it into two chunks when I teach it to you. So we'll do the quick event first, um, which is Acts chapter 19, verses one through seven. And then we will learn about the two year and three month period, um, which is Acts chapter 19, verses eight, nine, and 10. And I'll just kind of preach sort of two small sermons today instead of one big one, okay? We'll do a passage, talk about what it means, do the second half, talk about what it means. You following me? Yeah. All right, so let me go ahead and read the passage. Here it is. 
Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. That's where we left off last week. You remember that? So he comes to Ephesus. So now here's the new material. He found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, then what baptism were you baptized with? He asked them. With John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. Now, there were about 12 men in all. Then he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for a period of three months, engaging in discussion and trying to persuade them about the things of the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years, so that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll keep, I'll keep going. Um, God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, and even in the hearing of it, I pray that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear, and that we would do what you want us to do, and that you would be shaping us uh, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, so as I was reading that passage, could you tell where it switched, where it was talking about something, and then suddenly it moved really, really fast over a, over a two-year period. So we're just going to take them one at a time. Let's start with the first story, which is the first seven verses. What in the world is going on here? Paul shows up in Ephesus, and it looks like the very first thing that happens is he comes into contact with a group of 12 guys, all right? And in fact, the passage says it was about 12 men, which I don't know, that cracks me up a little bit. I just think the word about, like 12 seems like a precise number to put with the word about, doesn't it? You know, like how much was that? It was approximately $71. Like, I don't, I just don't know, I don't know why it's, I don't know why I didn't say about 10, but anyway, there was about 12 men. So I don't know how many, how many men are there, but about 12. And Paul's speaking to them and they, they, these men seem to be Christians. The word that's used to describe them is disciples, right? It says he found some disciples and the word disciples um, in the book of Acts almost always refers to Christians. Whenever it says the disciples did this or the disciples were meeting in Corinth, it's talking about people who are followers of Jesus. But these people don't seem to exactly be followers of Jesus. They're, they're clearly missing something. So he finds these, these people who are, had some sort of religious beliefs, right? And he said, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, right? When you believed in whatever it is you believe in, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their response is, no, never heard of him. And then he says, well, then what kind of baptism did you have when you were baptized? And they say, with John's baptism is what we were baptized. Now, with John's baptism is a reference to John the Baptist. That's who they're referring to when they say John's baptism. John the Baptist was a prophet and a preacher in Israel about maybe 20 years before this, okay? 20 years earlier, John the Baptist had a very significant ministry in Israel where he was calling people to repentance. He was baptizing people. The baptism that he was baptizing people with was connected to repentance. Okay, wash away our sins, turn away from our sins because the Messiah is coming. And that's what John the Baptist's ministry was, pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is going to come. So let's repent and be ready for the Messiah. And apparently John's ministry was such a big deal that it influenced people and even spread to other parts of the world. Because here we are now in Ephesus and you have these people who seem to be disciples of John the Baptist and they are hundreds of miles away from where John the Baptist did his stuff. And they now are still like 
disciples and, and they have John's baptism and they're believing whatever it is the stuff that they're believing, but they seem to not realize that Jesus has come. Like there's a, there's, they're still at 1.0. Like they still haven't, um, they, they haven't, this, this is a day and age where there's no, there's no social media, there's no texting, there's no newspaper. So they just, they, they learn about what John the Baptist teaches and they go, okay, well then this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna repent and we're gonna try to live right because the Messiah is on the way and 20 years goes by. And then finally someone catches up with them and goes, oh, you don't have to wait for the Messiah to come. Like that's already happened. He has already arrived. And so that's what Paul says to them. Paul says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. So I don't think that's like the only thing that Paul said. Like, I don't think this is a word for word transcript that he said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. Because I think that, if that's all he said, I don't think they'd be like, well, now that explains it all. Like, I think they would go, well, who's Jesus? When did he come? What was that all about? Like, what, what is, who? he was pointing forward to this other one. Who is this other one? What happened? And I bet you they asked that. And I bet you Paul said, I will be happy to tell you about him. Okay, I'm going around spending my whole life telling the whole world about him. And so I'm sure he explained to them about Jesus and he died on the cross for our sins. And this is the only way you can have forgiveness and you have to believe in his name and he rose again from the grave and you can have eternal life. I think Paul probably explained all of that to them and they believed him. And so in verse five, they heard it. And I think it's implied they believed it. And it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Like basically he's saying to them, if you're, gonna, you're, you're following John's baptism, that's great. But John was saying that when Jesus comes, you need to believe in him. And I'm telling you, he has come. So it is now it is time for you to believe in him. And so they do, and they're baptized into his name. And then something miraculous happens. Did you notice that in the story? It says that the, Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. So to prophesy, they're speaking things that God had given them to speak. And to speak in other languages, in the book of Acts, this happens several times in the book of Acts and pretty much every single time it, it happens, it's talking about something miraculous. When it says speaking in other languages, it doesn't just mean that they knew multiple languages and that they switched, you know, like they knew Hebrew and Greek and then they got baptized. And so they were speaking Hebrew before they got baptized. And then they just switched and started using the other language they knew after they were baptized. That's not what it's saying. This is a miraculous thing where after their baptism, they were speaking languages that they did not know five minutes ago, right? And you see this multiple times um, in the book of Acts where there was this like this miraculous, I'm speaking a language I did not know just a little bit ago. And so that's what happens. Uh, the, uh, some authors that write about this passage of scripture call it a mini Pentecost. You guys familiar with what happened at the first Pentecost? If you're not, it's earlier in the book of Acts and basically Jesus, when he is with his followers, just before he sends to heaven, he says to all of his followers, I want you to stay in Jerusalem um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go and I want you to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And so his followers went, yes, sir. And they waited in Jerusalem. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And it was in a dramatic way. And one of the dramatic things that happened was the same thing that happens here, that they started speaking languages that they did not know the day before. Um, and so these miraculous things are happening. And then you look at that, and that was like the first time the Holy Spirit shows up and pours on a people. And then here we are years later, and it happens again in a smaller way. In Pentecost, it was, I think, 120 people that the Holy Spirit came upon and they spoke these miraculous languages. In this case, it's about 12 people, right? So you have this like little smaller 10% size um, Pentecost that happens at the beginning of Paul's ministry to the people in Ephesus. And so the question is, okay, so a little mini Pentecost happens, that's cool, but why? Like, why is this in here? What does this teach us? I mean, does, is, does this story teach us that you receive the Holy Spirit at your baptism? 
Or does this story teach us that you will speak in tongues whenever you receive the Spirit? Like, I feel like we, when we come across a story like this, especially an unusual one like this, we need to ask ourselves these questions. What is it in here for? What does this teach us? How do we apply this to our life? In fact, one set of questions I think you can ask a lot of different, you can ask this about a lot of things, but I'm going to apply it to this text. One question you can ask is this, does this story tell us what did happen or does this story tell us what does happen? Does that make sense? When you're reading a passage of scripture, particularly a narrative portion like this, you ask yourself, is this story telling me something that did happen on one occasion, or is this story telling me what does happen on every occasion? Because the difference between those two things is going to interpret how you think it applies to your own life, right? So I look at this story and I think that this story tells us what did happen on this particular occasion rather than what happens on every occasion. Um, I don't think the story was meant to teach us that this is the way it works. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, you get baptized, and then at that moment, you speak in tongues. That that's the formula, that's what happens every single time, and this story is in here to tell us that this is the way God always works. I don't think that's why the story's in here the way it is. Okay, well, why? Well, I'm gonna have to just be totally honest first. I am biased. One of the reasons why I would look at a story like this and go, I don't think this is the way that it happens every time is because it does not match my own personal experience. And so I just have to let you know that, okay? You are hearing from a biased person. Um, this is not the experience that I had when I came to know God, that there was the place, I placed my faith in Jesus and then I got baptized and then I had received the Holy Spirit and, and spoken tongues. That's not how it was for me. As best as I can tell, I received the Holy Spirit when I was 14 years old. I did not love God and then one day I did. Like there was a day where I did not obey God. I didn't want to obey God. I didn't want to follow God. And then I did. I wanted to follow him with my whole life and I wanted to obey everything he said. Like some, something or someone did something to me. Like some, someone or something changed me when I was 14. But then I wasn't baptized until 12 years later. Okay, at the time I was a Presbyterian and they were really cagey about rebaptizing people that had been baptized earlier. And so I had to, like, I, I was like, I, I think I need to be baptized now that I'm a Christian. And I had Presbyterian friends who were like, yeah, that's nice, but like, we're not allowed, like, we took vows that we don't do that. And so I found a Baptist somewhere and he baptized me. And... <laughs> so anyway, so, so I, as fast as I can tell, I received the Holy Spirit at 14. 12 years later, I was baptized. Um, and so I, I had the Holy Spirit for 12 years before my baptism. And then at the moment of my baptism, when I came up out of the water, I did not speak in tongues on that day, nor have I spoken in tongues on any day since that day. But I don't believe, all, everything I just told you is true, but I don't think that that's a good enough answer as to why does this passage not teach us that that's what happens every time. Like personal, you cannot interpret this passage and believe whatever it is you're gonna believe about this passage based on my personal experiences. Does that make sense? Okay, good. One person on the front row and, and first service totally got it. So I'm, I'm, they were like, yeah, we get this. All right, so my personal experience is not the kind of thing that you're gonna go, okay, well, because Mario experienced this, then that's, then that's what this passage means. No, personal experiences are not the lens through which we interpret the Bible, okay? First of all, I could be lying to you, right? I mean, I'm not, but I mean, I could be, you don't know that. Um, or I could be mistaken, I could be deceived, right? I could, if it's true that, let's just say, if it's true that in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues, and I haven't ever spoken tongues, one option is that everything I'm saying is correct, but the other option is that I'm not saved, and, I'm, and I think I am. Does that make sense? 
So it can't just be my personal experience and it can't just be your personal experience that you figure out like which passages in the Bible teach us what, you know, what, is, what normally happens to everyone and which ones are. This is just a historical happening. And so I think a better answer than this doesn't fit with what happened to me. I think a better answer is for me to show you throughout the Bible, in fact, specifically throughout the book of Acts, that it does not happen this way every time. If I'm saying, I don't think it happens this way every time, I think the better way for me to show that to you is just show you it doesn't happen this way every single time in the book of Acts. So if you were to go back earlier in the book, and I'm just gonna give you some of these references, you can write them down if you want and look them up later. But in Acts chapter eight, verses 12 through 17, there is a story about these Samaritans that hear about um, Jesus. They hear the gospel. Um, And so these Samaritans hear about Jesus for the first time and they believe and they are baptized. And then at that point, after they're baptized, there is a delay in the Holy Spirit's arrival. You have these people that never heard about Jesus before. Then someone comes and preaches to them. I believe it's Philip preaches to them and then they believe and then they get baptized and then nothing happens for a little bit. In fact, it looks like it's several days of nothing happening because um, Peter and John have to travel to where the Samaritans are, and back then travel took a long time. Eventually, Peter and John show up to where the Samaritans are, and they lay hands on the Samaritans, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in the book of Acts, um, in Acts chapter 8, that there's faith, then there was baptism, and then no Holy Spirit at the point of their faith, and no Holy Spirit at the point of their baptism, but then Holy Spirit when John and um, Peter showed up and laid hands on them, which you could hear that story and go, oh, okay, well, now I'm changing my opinions here. Now I got a new theory. Maybe it's not the baptism that causes you to receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's the laying on of hands that causes someone to receive the Holy Spirit, because that's what happened in Acts 8, and that's in this passage too, right? You, you, you read it earlier, and he was there, there was the 12 men, and it says, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So maybe that's when it happens. Mm, I, mean, I guess anything's possible. But if you keep going, you'll see that a different order happens the next time one of these stories happens. In fact, it's, it's, there's a lot of these stories that happen in a different way each time. So two chapters after the Samaritans, which keep in mind that one, it was faith, then baptism, then Holy Spirit came later. Two chapters later, Acts chapter 10 Um, This is verses 44 through 48. There's a Gentile named Cornelius and Peter is the one that's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And in that case, Peter preaches the gospel. They believe, no mention of laying on of hands at all. And the Holy Spirit comes on them and they start speaking in these miraculous languages. And then they're baptized. So a different order than what happened with the Samaritans. Peter's there. There's no laying on the hands in the story at all. And I, I... it's hard to imagine that it could even be implied. Like if you go back and read Acts chapter 10, 44 through 48, you'll see that the Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles as Peter was speaking to them. So it wasn't as he was laying hands on them, unless you want to believe that he was like laying hands on all these people while he was preaching at them. But I mean, that certainly is not what the, the passage says. He's just telling them about Jesus. And at the moment of their faith, this miraculous thing happens to show that the Gentiles truly were accepted by God and believe in Jesus and they had the Holy Spirit. And then it specifically says that they baptized these people because they had already received the Holy Spirit. So it's a different order in that case. Now, if you then go and look at Acts chapter 9, verses 17 through 18, or Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15, or Acts chapter 16, verses 32 through 34, or Acts chapter 18, verse eight, you will see all of those are accounts of people converting to Christianity and being baptized with no mention of tongues at all, anywhere having anything to do with the story. No no miraculous languages. 
So you have four different accounts, all of which we covered last year when we talked about the life of Paul for seven months. Do you remember that last year? All of these accounts are in there where you have people converting to Christianity. Every single one of them mentions them being baptized, and there's no mention of tongues at at any point in any of those stories, though there are in the Cornelius story and in today's story with the about 12 men. Additionally, there are a few times in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul strongly implies that not all Christians speak in tongues. And of course, there are numerous passages of Scripture that speak of people believing in Jesus and even having the Holy Spirit within them with no mention of speaking in tongues. So, now we set aside my personal experience. We look at story after story after story of how these things happen, and even later on in the New Testament, how this issue is is handled. And I would say now, when I look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, I do not think the point of this passage is... If on the day that you got baptized, you did not speak in tongues, it didn't work, and you got to try it again. That's, I don't think that's why it's in here. I don't think that's why Luke added it in here. That's not the point. Rather, it seems to me that what's happening in Acts chapter 19 is this, is this miracle that takes place with these 12 guys. It was a visible demonstration that an incomplete, Old Testament, no Jesus in it kind of faith is not enough. Right? They did not have the Holy Spirit until they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and understood the gospel. Right? That, that under the time period of John the Baptist, especially before Jesus came, it made sense to go, well, we need to repent of our sins and we need to look forward to the Messiah who's going to come. But at this point, Paul's saying, no, we're not looking forward to the Messiah anymore. We're looking backwards now. He's already come. We can't, we can't live as if Jesus hasn't come yet. That's not the kind of faith we're supposed to have. Now that Jesus has arrived, we must believe in him. We can no longer look forward to a Messiah to show up. We must look backward to the Messiah we know did show up and place our faith in him. And so when the Bible says things like, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, it's true. That if what Paul really meant when he wrote that was, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and have someone lays hands on you in such a way that a miraculous event is imparted to you to know that you're saved, I think he would have said that, right? That would be a huge thing to leave out of a gospel presentation in the New Testament. In fact, that would be a huge thing that is left out in pretty much every single New Testament gospel presentation. There's no way that that, there's no way something that huge would be left out. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And that's what these men did. And there was a demonstration of it in front of everybody. Look, look at these people who have come to know the true God. So that's the first part. And like I said, I think that probably took place over the course of maybe one afternoon. And then we have the next three verses, which is much smaller, but it's a much longer period of Paul's life. So let's go to look at verse eight. It says, he then, or sorry, then he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, engaging in discussion and trying to persuade them about the things of the kingdom of God. So this is the three-month part of the two-year, three-month period. And what Paul does at this point in Ephesus, so it looks like he shows up, he has the encounter with the 12 guys, and then he goes on in and he has this three-month period where he is trying to persuade them in the synagogue. What Paul does here is he employs his usual strategy. For those of you who were with us last year, you might remember because we talked about all these different cities that Paul went to and what he did when he got there. This is his normal strategy. This is what he does in almost every town. Every town that has a synagogue, this is the way he does it. He goes and he preaches to the Jewish people first. 
He preaches in the synagogue until they reject him or kick him out. And in some cases, they kick him out so hard that they like kick him out of the town. And so his next thing is to just move to a new city and start over again. But in some cases, they just reject him and they don't cook him out too hard. And so he just leaves the synagogue only, stays in town, sets up shop somewhere else in town, and continues to minister to the Gentiles in that town. So in this case, that's what happens. And it took a period of three months until they, until they pushed him out. Um, which is actually a long time. If you go back and look at the other cities, like he lasted a while at this particular synagogue. Like it seems like they got fed up with him much quicker most of the time. But they put up with him for like a lot of sermons, okay? Three months they were fine with it until finally they couldn't handle it anymore. And so he, he leaves after the, around the three-month mark and he sets up shop in a local school. So let's go ahead and read verse nine. But when some became hardened and would not believe slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, meaning left the synagogue, and met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I don't know, ever since I've learned about this verse, I've always thought it was a very fascinating verse. That here he is conducting discussions. He, he leaves them and sets up his little headquarters in this, this building called the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, this building might have been a place where the philosophies of a guy named Tyrannus were taught. Um, or it might be that just Tyrannus is the owner of the lecture hall. And so this is just, this is a building that Paul um, rented or borrowed from a guy named Tyrannus. It could be that Tyrannus or somebody else used it in the mornings or in the evenings for teaching. And then Paul used it the other part of the day. But some things I wanna point out with this verse that I think are interesting is when he leaves the synagogue and he starts up his, like the way he's gonna do ministry in Ephesus for two years, what he does is he goes to this school and he conducts discussions. That's the way he did it here. And that's just a little bit interesting to me because that sounds a lot different than preaching. The, the word that's translated conducting discussions is a word that, I mean, apparently it can mean like preaching and teaching or reasoning with people, but it's a, it's a word that seems to imply a back and forth rather than like a monologue like I'm doing right now. It looks like the strategy that he used in Ephesus was some kind of like question and answer session that he would do each day um, in, the, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They're discussing and they're going back and forth, asking questions and answering questions and stuff. The other thing I think is interesting is it says he conducted the discussions how often? Every day. This is not just a Sunday morning thing, right? They didn't just, when he kind of plants the church in Ephesus, he doesn't start up by doing a once a week meeting on Sunday mornings. He starts having these Q&A sessions every single day, right? He spends a little bit of time at least every single day teaching the Ephesians about Jesus and his kingdom. And this is the very first time that he uses a school. Like there are a lot of different places where Paul preached. He, you know, he just did whatever he needed to do in whatever city he was in. So there was one, one occasion earlier in the book of Acts where he's just uh, reasoning with the people in the marketplace. He just goes to the marketplace and starts talking to people about Jesus. There's one account that talks about how he, was, um, he preached about Jesus in the Areopagus, which was in Athens, Greece. And it was this um, like kind of inter-religious and inter-philosophical court and you, you kind of could come and just sort of do a TED talk and just present your ideas to the people. And that's what, and Paul said, okay, I'll do it. And he went and he preached about Jesus. Um, there are times, many times throughout this story, especially for those of you who are last year and you remember the story, many times that he preached in synagogues. And then he also was a part of Christian gatherings that met in houses, okay? 
Do you remember how there were certain like people in the story who would use their, they would allow their house to be used by Paul and that would be where Paul would be headquartered in that city? Do any of you remember that? You remember in Philippi what the name of the lady was? Anybody remember the name of the lady in Philippi who said, why don't you come to my house? And then there were church meetings in her house. Anybody remember? Somebody said, yeah, Lydia. That's correct. Very good. Um, so in, in that case, it was Lydia. But then I think in one, there was a different city. I think maybe it was Thessalonica, in Thessalonica. It was Jason's house. By the time he gets to Corinth, it was Titius Justice's house. And that was a really interesting one. You may not remember his name because I don't ever hear people talk about Titius Justice. But you might remember the story because it was. I think it's very funny. So Paul's preaching at the synagogue and the same thing happens. It happens every time. They go, we don't want you anymore. Um, and so he leaves. But the, the person who said, you can use my house as your headquarters, Titius Justice, he owned, do you remember, remember how close it was? Yeah, it was the house next door. So he just, so they said, get out of here. And he was like, okay. And then he just went to the next building over and continued to do his ministry, just one building over. So that's not what happens here. At least it doesn't say that. I don't know the distance between the synagogue and the lecture hall of Tyrannus, but it doesn't say it's next door. But that's what happens here. He goes, and this time he uses, and this is the first time he's done this in any of these stories, he borrows a lecture hall as the place that he headquarters his church planting evangelism ministry in Ephesus. And then the other thing I wanted to point out to you is that he keeps this up for two years. Look at verse 10. It says, and this went on for two years so that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. So much stuff, I guess, that he had to communicate that he took time every day for hundreds of days in a row, right? Every day he would go and for two years he was preaching and he was uh, discussing with people and question and answer and what do you, and I hear this is what, this, and he's telling tell them all the stuff about Jesus. And it's so effective that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. It starts spreading to other places. I'm assuming that it wasn't Paul that was going to these other places, that he was there for two years and people who came and were parts of these discussions then left and went to the surrounding area and they told people about Jesus. Right? So that all the inhabitants of Asia heard about the Lord. And by the way, when it says Asia, this is not modern day Asia. That's not what the word means here. So this is not, this is not saying that Paul in Ephesus preached in such a way that people in Korea heard about Jesus. The word Asia here is a, um, a particular section of the Roman Empire that had that name, and Ephesus was in that, that region. The region that Ephesus was, was called Asia. Um, so the point is, the gospel is being preached over and over and over again every day for two years in Ephesus and then is spreading to the other cities nearby. And then that's the second section, which there's less words, but that's two years and three months. Now, as far as application goes for this second sermon or this second part of this sermon, um, what I wanted to point out to you in closing is simply that it seems to me what happens in this story is obviously a strategic move on Paul's part. What happens in this part of the story, meaning the three verses about the two, two years and three months, the using the lecture hall and this conducting discussions and all of this stuff, this was a strategic move on Paul's part. And what I mean by that is Paul doesn't do the ministry that he does in Ephesus because that's the only way to reach a city. Paul does what he does in Ephesus because that's the best way he knows how to reach this particular city. Does that make sense? that you have to ask yourself, really, it's the same question we asked about the first, the first passage, okay? This, the same questions I asked earlier, I'll ask about the second half. Does this story of the, hall, the, the, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, does this story tell us what did happen one time or does it tell us what does happen every time? 
And it's really obvious in the second half what the answer is, right? This story tells us what did happen one time, okay? What happened in Ephesus, I mean, for those of you that remember that we were, as we were learning through the book of Acts, this is not what happened every time. This is what happened this one time. Um, last year, when we were covering all this, we covered, um, I think it was at least 10 cities in the Roman Empire that Paul went to, and we, and we discussed what it was that Paul did. Like, we preached about what it was that Paul did as he was evangelizing all of these cities. And what he does in Ephesus is different than what he did in all 10 of those other cities that we've covered so far. That is good to know. The reason it's good to know is because we need to, as we look at our Bibles, to be able to figure out the difference between stories that we go, this is a pattern that we must follow, and stories where we go, that is a thing that happened in history, right? Like, it's good for us to know when we look and see, okay, this is what he did in Ephesus because this is what worked in Ephesus. I think it's good for us to know because we need to know that this passage, for instance, does not require us to meet in a school, right? We don't have to say, well, that's what they did in the Bible. They met in a lecture hall, so that's what you have to do when you start a church. It must meet in a lecture hall. No, that happened one time in Ephesus. It didn't happen in any of the other cities. This passage does not require us to meet in a school. This passage does not require us to meet every day. This passage does not require us to host discussions as the format that we use in order to teach. This passage does not require us to leave after two years, right? This is not the only way to do ministry. Is that right? Right, but here's the thing. If this is not the only way to do ministry because Paul did it other ways in other places, you know what else that means? This is big. It means what we do here is not the only way to do ministry. Did you know that? Yeah, what we do here is not the only way to do ministry. You do not have to sing four songs, then have a 40-minute sermon with community groups and Bible studies during the week and sponsor a summer camp for kids in foster care. Like that is not the only way to do it. That's the way we do it here. That's not the only way to do ministry. And sometimes I think we get so committed to a specific strategy that over time it becomes a specific tradition And then once it becomes a specific tradition, it almost feels like a sin to make a change. Have you seen that before in churches? Where someone goes, oh, something's changed here and culture's different or this situation's different. What if we do it this way from now on? And and people go, no, we can't do something we've never done before, right? No, we we must always do what we've always done, right? There's just that feeling. It would be wrong because what we were doing, are you saying what we were doing wasn't good? Well, no, it was good. Well, then why would we stop doing good? You know what I mean? Like we, we, we need to do what we've always done. No, there are times when situations change. Ministry changes from place to place, and you can see this really obviously as Paul lived his life. Now, I say this because that's what came to my mind when I read this passage. So if any of you are going, wait a minute, Mario, are you, are you bringing all this stuff up because you're like prepping us for some big change? You got this whole sermon where you go, hey, well, sometimes churches need to change things. Are you prepping us because you're about to change a bunch of stuff? No, I love the way we do things around here. I don't want to change anything. I'm just saying, as I read this passage, I realize we should not ever get to the point that we go, it's wrong to change things. It's wrong to do something different than the way we're doing it now. Um, I'm not, I don't have any agenda because like, I'm just, just, if you're wondering, well, then why are you preaching on it? Because we're going verse by verse through the book of Acts and this is the passage we're on. And as I look at the passage, I go, wow, this story is a good reminder that ministry will look different in different places and in different cultures and in different situations. And we have to remember that because that will affect the way we serve God in our life in the places that we go. Uh, Lord willing, we will talk more about uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus next week. But for now, let's, uh, let's cut it off here and pray. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that we can look through your word and we can see 
certain patterns where we go, oh, wow, when, when people come to understand Jesus, they trust in him and they repent of their sins. And we see the pattern over and over and over and over and over again so much that we can look at our own lives and go, I must trust in him and I must repent of my sins. But then we can look at other passages and go, oh, well, sometimes he spoke in the marketplace and sometimes he rented a lecture hall and sometimes he stayed in the city for two weeks and sometimes he stayed in the city for two years. And we can start to realize that not every story in the Bible is for us to reenact perfectly, but for us to take the principles out of it and then serve you in our day and in our age and our culture and our situation with what you've given us. And so I thank you for these stories. I thank you for these 12 men and that Paul was, uh, that he would share the gospel with them and they would come to know you and you would make it so dramatically obvious that they had come to know you. And I thank you that you've come into our lives and made it, I mean, I, I, I look back at my life and I go, I, I came to know you and I can remember when it was. And so I thank you for the, that you come and change our lives. And then I thank you for this, this two, year, three, two, two year and three month period of Paul's life. I feel like we really can learn a lot from it and that we can look and we can go, okay, that's what he did in that city. So how can we be creative and reach our city so that we could say, oh, the inhabitants of Ocala heard the message of the Lord. And not that we would go, okay, so we're, then we'll just do exactly the same thing. We gotta go find a lecture hall that's owned by a guy named Tyrannus and then we're gonna have to give birth to somebody and name him Tyrannus in order to make it happen. We don't have to reenact exactly what happened. We just need to be faithful in our day and our time to what you've given us. And so I just pray that you'd help us as a church that we would do that, that we would not, um, not that we would be bitter toward traditions. There's nothing wrong with traditions. Just I pray that you'd help us that our traditions would never cause us to um, go off course and not do what you've called us to do as, as being effective ministers in your name in this time and this place. I pray you'd help us to do what you've called us to do in this town. And we love you and we thank you that you use us. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. We thank you that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you were raised from the dead, we'll be saved. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.